All right, so tonight we're back in Genesis, and we'll be getting into a Genesis uh, day day three uh, with the creation of the seas and the, the dry land. Uh, but tonight we're going to do something uh, just a little bit different, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into the heart of Genesis 3 uh, next week. Uh, and just to, to introduce this, let me read for you uh, first from the ESV translation, and you can follow along uh, with uh, day three, uh, starting in verse nine. Uh, and we'll just read the, the first part of, of day three, and then I'm going to read it from a slightly different translation. Okay, starting in verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, let me read from, uh, it's a modified version of the, the ESV, and just listen and see if you notice uh, any, uh, any differences. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one gathering, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And the waters under the heavens were gathered to their gathering places, and the dry land appeared. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So did you notice any uh, major or, or minor differences while, while reading along? Uh, the, there's one uh, small difference, uh, if you noticed, that instead of uh, them uh, being gathered into one place, uh, God commanded that they be gathered into one gathering. Uh, that, that's a very small difference. doesn't make uh, much of a difference at all. Uh, but then the, the big difference uh, was that in the first one, uh, there wasn't an action following the report, uh, but it just jumped straight uh, to, uh, to the, God's naming. Uh, but in the second one, uh, there was an action of uh, following uh, the, the report. Uh, and so uh, why is this? Why, why would there be such a, a difference between uh, these two translations? Uh, and that's what we're going to investigate uh, tonight, especially with the, the big difference, the, the small difference. We might talk a little bit about that uh, next week. Uh, but really, the, the short answer uh, is that uh, we have a different ancient copies uh, of Genesis chapter 1, uh, and the, there's a, a Greek copy uh, that copies from uh, a, a Hebrew copy before it uh, that has an action. Uh, but then uh, in our, our uh, Hebrew text that we typically use, uh, it's missing the action. And so uh, this is where uh, a discipline called textual criticism uh, helps us uh, look at and determine uh, these differences and which is really the original. And uh, th that's what we'll be looking at tonight. Uh, and then we'll, we'll be giving just a, a very concise overview uh, of uh, textual criticism. 
Uh, and we, we won't be going uh, very deep into it, so we'll make some uh, generalizations and oversimplify things a bit. Uh, but this will at least introduce some of these differences so that uh, after tonight, in the, the weeks and uh, Lord willing, the, the months to come, uh, we can address some of these issues from time to time. Uh, because we really live in a, a time where Christians can't remain ignorant uh, about these issues. Uh, and as James White has said, uh, here we can talk about it in the context of faith and actually believing in God's word and see how God has chosen to preserve his word. Uh, and really, uh, one of the most dangerous things besides unbelief uh, is being uh, ignorant and not knowing how God has preserved his word throughout the, uh, the centuries and how it's been copied. So uh, we'll first look at uh, what textual criticism is. Uh, and we'll cover briefly some of the, the earliest uh, manuscripts. Those are just handwritten copies. Uh, some of the earliest copies that we have. Uh, and then the, uh, the, the copying transmission process that the scribes would go through. Uh, followed by uh, the, the role of textual uh, criticism in helping us uh, determine the, uh, the, the original uh, text uh, that Moses wrote. And then we'll, we'll look at just a, a couple uh, copies from, or a couple examples uh, putting textual criticism into practice from Genesis chapter 1. And so first, uh, looking at uh, what textual criticism is, uh, and our earliest uh, sources. Uh, l listen to this uh, explanation from uh, Paul D. Wagner, who wrote uh, A Student's Guide to Textual Criticism of the Bible. The job of the textual critic is very similar to that of a detective, searching for clues as to the original reading of the text. It is reminiscent of the master detective, Sherlock Holmes, who could determine a number of characteristics of the suspect from the slightest of clues left at the crime scene. In our case, the crime scene is the biblical text, and often we have far fewer clues to work from than we would like. Yet, the job of the textual critic is extremely important, for we are trying to determine the exact reading of a text in order to know what God has said and expects from us. And so let's keep that in mind, what, what he just said. Uh, textual criticism is so important uh, because we want to know what God truly has said, uh, and we want to know uh, what he expects from us. And so that is why we go into these issues. Otherwise, uh, we just leave them on the table and forget about them. They, they really wouldn't be all that uh, important. Now, as for the earliest uh, copies, first it's important to recognize that the, uh, our Old Testament today, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, was originally written in Hebrew and portions of it also in Aramaic. Uh, and uh, it, the, the books of it were first were written over uh, about a 1,000-year period. Uh, from the 15th century B.C. Uh, all the way to the, the 5th century B.C. by uh, many uh, different authors. 
uh, beginning uh, with Moses and the, the Torah, the, the five books of Moses. Torah uh, is the, the Hebrew word that stands for law or instruction, the, the law of Moses. Uh, in uh, Genesis, which we're stu- uh, studying, was uh, finished by uh, 1406 uh, B.C. Uh, but uh, our earliest copies uh, date a, a bit later than that. Uh, and maybe you've heard of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls or the, uh, the scrolls that were found in the, the Judean desert of Israel. Uh, those are the earliest ones we have. And let me just read something about the, the discovery of these uh, scrolls. And it's, it's almost kind of like a, a great treasure find uh, in the, the providence of God uh, that gives us these earliest uh, biblical uh, manuscripts. And this is from uh, James C. Vanderkam in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls today. He says, John Trevor, uh, living from 1915 to 2006, one of the first scholars to lay eyes on any of the scrolls, uh, and the first to photograph those brought to him in 1948, wrote a thoroughly researched and documented history of the initial Qumran finds. Much of his report came from his own experience and notes. According to his account, three Bedouin shepherds were in an area called Qumran on the northwest side of the Dead Sea in the winter or spring of 1947, possibly in late 1946, as the Bedouin claimed. At that time, uh, the territory was under the rule of the British Mandate in Palestine. The shepherds, who were cousins and members of the Ta'amira tribe, uh, were apparently tending their flocks when one of them, named Juma Muhammad Khalil, uh, who enjoyed searching for caves, amused himself by tossing rocks at a cave opening in the cliffs to the west of the plateau at Qumran. One of the rocks went into the mouth of the cave and shattered something inside. Uh, The three did not enter the cave at that time to check what had broken. But two days later, one of the shepherds, Muhammad Ed-Dib, his real name is Muhammad Ahmed El-Hamed, rose early in the morning before his companions had awakened, located the cave and squeezed into it. There he found ten jars, each about two feet high. To his dismay, all but two of them were empty. One of these two had dirt in it, uh, the other contained three scrolls, two of which were wrapped in linen. The scrolls were later identified as a copy of the biblical book of Isaiah, the manual of discipline, and a commentary on the prophecy of Habakkuk. And then he lists some of the other scrolls that were found. Uh, So in in the providence of God, uh, around 1947, some shepherds were just out and about doing their thing, uh, taking their their flocks around. Uh, And he was throwing rocks at a cave and heard something shatter. Uh, And as James C. Vanderkam uh, says, uh, what they found uh, in this cave uh, and 11 subsequent caves following uh, between the years 1947 and 1956 uh, is what's called the, the greatest archaeological find of the, the 20th century. Uh, and it's the most important one for uh, the Old Testament and the, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and so uh, what, what was found uh, in these uh, 11 caves 
uh, were the, the Dead Sea Scrolls or Judean Desert Scrolls. And they're dated between uh, 250 BC uh, to uh, about uh, 115 uh, AD. Uh, and uh, some of my information comes from uh, Emmanuel Tav uh, in his book, uh, Textual Criticism of the, the Hebrew Bible. He's uh, one of the most prominent scholars in the, the world on these finds. Uh, and so uh, these scrolls uh, brought our uh, Hebrew and American, Aramaic texts of the Old Testament back more than 1,000 years. Uh, because our, our earliest ones are what we call the, the Masoretic uh, group of texts, or uh, even better named, uh, the, the rabbinic group of texts, because the, the Jewish rabbis preserved them from uh, before the time uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, all the way to uh, the, uh, around the 10th to 15th century uh, AD. Uh, that's where we uh, had uh, our earliest texts uh, before the, the time of Qumran. And they brought it back a thousand years uh, in some of the texts that we found uh, were uh, were uh, essentially a letter uh, by letter uh, identical uh, to uh, our text from a thousand years later. And think of copying that long, and they could almost be uh, identical after that time. Now, those weren't the only group of texts. They found some with, with other differences, uh, too. And that they had all, some of them that they had already known about, but th that's truly incredible. Uh, and then, uh, so in these uh, caves, uh, most of the caves were, were empty. They, they didn't find much of ever, uh, much of anything, uh, but some of them uh, they found very uh, valuable uh, scrolls. Uh, for instance, in Cave One, he, he mentioned the uh, Isaiah text, uh, the the Great Isaiah Scroll. Uh, which is called in uh, shorthand 1Q Isaiah 8. And the, the 1 stands for Cave 1, Q stands for Qumran, uh, and Isaiah A is just the, the label that they gave to, uh, to that scroll. And it was the whole text uh, of Isaiah, uh, all of it preserved uh, completely, uh, hidden in the caves for thousands of years before being found, uh, which is truly amazing. Uh, and they, they found uh, between uh, 210 to 212 uh, biblical uh, scrolls from Qumran. Uh, and uh, of these scrolls, uh, they found between 1 to 36 uh, manuscripts. Those are handwritten copies uh, for every book of the Hebrew Bible except Esther. Uh, Esther is the only one that they didn't find a copy for. Uh, and Emmanuel Tov said that that's, uh, that, that's really just uh, a matter of chance, although biblically we, we know that ultimately chance uh, doesn't exist. Uh, but uh, of, of these uh, 210 to 212 scrolls, the, the most uh, numerous ones were the, the Psalms with 36 scrolls, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, the, the fifth book of Moses with 32 uh, and then Genesis uh, with 23 to 24 uh, scrolls and Isaiah uh, with 21. Uh, and uh, Tav says, uh, most of the fragments are small, uh, containing no more than one-tenth of a biblical book, while 
uh, 1Q Isaiah A, the, the great Isaiah scroll, contains the complete text of Isaiah. And then just lastly, talking about the, the earliest scrolls, uh, I'll just mention quickly, we, we had already uh, mentioned the, the Masoretic or Rabbinic text uh, that was uh, kept for uh, so, so many uh, years and uh, preserved uh, so well. Uh, they found groups of texts that were, um, that were some of them were exactly alike, uh, almost identical, and uh, others that were uh, very similar to it. Uh, and so uh, those are very important Hebrew texts. Uh, another important Hebrew text uh, is the, the Samaritan Pentateuch group of texts, uh, which uh, it's called Samaritan Pentateuch because later uh, the, the Samaritans, uh, who were uh, people that were brought in uh, during the, the, the exile of Israel, uh, they were brought in from, from foreign lands uh, and brought into the, uh, the land of Israel mixed with the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, they preserved these texts very well, although they made some, uh, some religious theological changes uh, that, that were bad. Uh, but besides that, uh, they preserved it very well. And so it's Samaritan Pentateuch, meaning uh, Pentateuch, five books of Moses, doesn't cover the, the whole Old Testament. Uh, and then there's the, the Septuagint, which we've talked about, uh, which uh, is a Greek translation, or more accurately, uh, Greek translations uh, of the, uh, the books of the, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. Uh, and so from around 250 BC uh, to the, the early, uh, early century or so AD, uh, the, the books of the Hebrew Bible were translated into Greek and eventually uh, brought brought together into what we call the uh, the Septuagint, uh, which is uh, goes back to the old Greek uh, translation. But uh, they were translating from from Hebrew, so that's why it's uh, so important. Uh, and then we won't talk about these. But uh, Tav also mentioned some that were written with a Qumran scribal practice. So the the scribes at Qumran had their own writings and. Then those that are uh, unaffiliated, we, we just don't have enough to, to group them with, uh, with anything else. And so uh, those are some of the, the earliest texts we have uh, between uh, 250 B.C. to uh, 115 A.D. And if you think about 250 B.C., uh, the, there were actually many of the biblical writings were written not many centuries uh, before that. And so now uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the copying uh, process. Uh, so uh, if you think about, uh, especially going back to the, the time of Moses uh, in the 15th century BC, uh, what he originally wrote uh, had to be copied uh, over time. Uh, eventually, those scrolls he wrote on uh, wore out. Uh, and so they had to be copied at least uh, until the time of Johannes Gutenberg, uh, the inventor of the printing press, around 1450 uh, A.D. Uh, and so during this time, uh, they had to be copied by hand. Uh, and handwritten copies are called uh, manuscripts. Uh, that's all manuscript means, just a, a handwritten copy. 
And if you think about, uh, we, we talked about the Masoretic text that uh, is preserved uh, almost identically uh, for over a thousand uh, years, uh, which is uh, truly incredible. But still, uh, humans are, are finite. Uh, we're, we're imperfect. Uh, and so uh, we don't have perfect uh, perception. So if you, you think of the scribes, uh, sometimes w- when they're reading, uh, they would see things improperly and may- maybe make a mistake and when they copy it down. Uh, sometimes if they were hearing it read, sometimes they'd mishear things and they'd uh, write it down. Uh, and so th- these would la- lead to, uh, to little mistakes and uh, differences over time. Uh, and if you think about uh they, they could also struggle with things like uh, attention. Uh, active attention uh, takes effort. Uh, for instance, right now, you guys got to make an effort to listen. And uh, a lot of people consider things like textual criticism in manuscripts, uh, uh, dry, old, dusty manuscripts, uh, boring. Oh, if, if you just talk about anything else, uh, we promise we try to pay attention, but... Uh, but we're really struggling right now to, to pay attention. Well, you guys know a little how it would feel uh, to be, be a scribe in those days, uh, copying word by word, uh, trying to uh, pay attention. And so, like us, they, they'd struggle with uh, distractedness and uh, boredom and multitasking and daydreaming and hunger and pain. Uh, and I, I remember uh, some, I think like uh, Paul Wagner has said, that it could actually be very painful to, to be hunched over uh, copying these things all the time. And uh, today uh, there are uh, doctors that are saying that uh, sitting is actually uh, killing us. So uh, if, you weren't, if you weren't depressed uh, already, uh, you guys who are uh, sitting, uh, uh, right now sitting is killing you and that's why I'm standing up. So, <laughs> uh, But it, it could be painful uh, and, and boring uh, and uh, they also could have other problems with memory, uh, reasoning, uh, physical responses. Uh, their their tools and environments were often uh, imperfect to, to work with. And uh, as James R. White, a Christian apologist, has said, uh, sometimes the scribes were just having uh, really bad old days. Uh, so <laughs> they're having a bad day. They, they might be prone to, to make more mistakes. Uh, and so uh, Paul Wagner says, Uh, It can be difficult for today's student who photocopies, sends faxes, and reads hundreds of pages for assignments to appreciate how painstaking a task it was to copy a book before the the introduction of movable type. Uh, In reading any version of the Bible today, it is essential to understand that its books underwent many centuries of hand copying before the appearance of the printing press in the 15th century uh, AD. Uh, And so sometimes this could result in uh, errors uh, and it could result in uh, differences between the the different copies, the the different uh, manuscripts. Uh, And these differences are called uh, variants. They're they're just variants in the, uh, the manuscripts. Uh, and not all variants are uh, errors. Some of them are, uh, but uh, many of them uh, actually uh, go, they go back uh, to what uh, Moses originally wrote and what the, the biblical authors uh, originally wrote. Uh, and so some of these differences could be sometimes things are added, uh, sometimes things are omitted, taken away. 
sometimes there are other changes and uh, things are moved to different places, uh, transpositions. Uh, and errors could be uh, either uh, intentional on the scribe's part uh, or just completely accidental, just a, a mishap. Uh, if you think about like writing on a, a computer, uh, I had to do a lot of writing to, to get through college. Uh, I make mistakes. I, I misspelled things. And thankfully, we have spell check, uh, if, if you remember to use it. Uh, but words like uh, there and there. Uh, I went there. Uh, and uh, you could talk about their wedding. T-H-E-R-E and T-H-E-I-R. Uh, that's probably the most common mistake that I've made. Uh, for some reason, I'll think about one, but between my brain and my fingers, uh, the, the wrong one will come out sometimes. Uh, I remember another paper uh, where I was uh, writing uh, about Jesus' disciples in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and sometimes Jesus possessed things, like his disciples, Jesus' disciples. Uh, and so there'd be apostrophe at the end of Jesus uh, and Jesus' actions. Uh, but sometimes, even when he wasn't possessing things, I'd accidentally add uh, an apostrophe. Uh, and so uh, even uh, typing out quotes, uh, some, sometimes we, we mistype them and they, uh, you can create all sorts of uh, errors. Uh, and these are similar sorts of things that would happen to the, the scribes from time to time. And so uh, we considered uh, briefly the, the earliest manuscripts and uh, the copying uh, transmission process. Uh, this is where uh, textual criticism uh, comes into play, uh, dealing with the differences and trying to figure out which are the original, uh, which bring us back to, to what Moses actually wrote. Uh, and so uh, just as an example, uh, think about if 20 of us from Gospel of Grace Fellowship, uh, let's say we, uh, we lived back in the time when uh, Mark wrote his gospel. Uh, and each of us, we're going to make a, a copy of the Gospel of Mark. It's the, the shortest of all the Gospels. Uh, we would all make some uh, mistakes along the way, even if we tried to be very careful. I mean, that's a lot of copying uh, to do. Uh, and so if we want to correct our mistakes, uh, th there'd be at least a couple ways we could do that. Uh, if we had access to uh, Mark's original Gospel, uh, we could uh, set our copies next to it, uh, go through uh, try and find any differences and uh, correct them. Uh, cross out the mistakes and uh, put in the, the, the corrections. But if we didn't have the, the original Gospel of Mark, uh, there are still ways that we could correct them. Uh, since we each made a copy, uh, we probably wouldn't have all made the, the exact same mistakes. Uh, in fact, if you think about it, uh, would any of us make the same mistakes at all? We, we probably make all different mistakes uh, in, in different places. So uh, we could compare our copies to one another uh, and try and figure out uh, where the differences are, uh, what went wrong, uh, and then we could try to, uh, try to fix them and, and work back to the, uh, the, the Gospel of, of Mark. Uh, now, Old Te Testament textual criticism is a little more complicated. Uh, we don't have the originals, the, the autographs, uh, they're called. Uh, especially like the, uh, the books of Moses were written so long ago, uh, those probably wore out uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, also, uh, 
many of them had to be copied for hundreds uh, or even uh, thousands of, of years before the, the time of the, the printing press. Uh, and then uh, the, the originals have been uh, preserved uh, in thousands of, of ancient copies. And uh, so that's a lot of uh, comparative work to, uh, to do. And they, they, they're related to one another in very complex ways. So uh, Old Testament textual, textual criticisms are uh, a bit uh, more complicated. And now, if you think about these differences, some people think that, well, differences are a bad, uh, a bad thing. Well, think about that. Uh, there's an easy way that we could have no differences. Uh, for instance, uh, as Emmanuel Tov says, uh, our uh, earliest, uh, most complete, best copy of the Hebrew Bible is the Leningrad Codex. Uh, it's a, a Masoretic text, a, a rabbinic text, copied by the, the rabbis from uh, 1008 uh, AD. If you think about it, well, uh, we could take the Leningrad Codex and just uh, destroy uh, all of the thousands of other manuscripts and all that we found at Qumran, and uh, guess what? Uh, we'd have no differences, because all we'd have is the Leningrad Codex. Uh, but really, if you think about it, we'd just be left in ignorance because uh, uh, we would have nothing to compare the Leningrad Codex to. Uh, we, we couldn't make any comparisons. Uh, we really wouldn't have much reason of all to uh, believe. How would we know that the Leningrad Codex is our best one? How would we know that it's the, uh, the most complete and that it, it preserved what the, the prophets originally wrote? And so that would be an absolute disaster. Uh, and so it's actually better to have more manuscripts, although that means more differences. Uh, you can compare them uh, to one another. And so now, uh, just to close on what textual criticism is, uh, we're, we're going to get into our examples uh, in Genesis 1. Uh, let me give you a definition by uh, Wagner. He says, Unfortunately, uh, no original manuscripts called autographs of any of the biblical books have been recovered. And since no extant manuscripts, extant just means still in existence, since no extant manuscripts uh, agree with each other in every detail, textual criticism is necessary to resolve questions of variation. Alfred E. Hausman, a text critic of classical works, observes that textual criticism is based on, quote, common sense and the use of reason, end quote. Briefly stated, textual criticism is the science and art that seeks to determine the most reliable wording of a text. It is a science because specific rules govern the evaluation of various types of copyist errors and readings. But it is also an art uh, because these rules cannot rigidly be applied in every situation. Intuition and common sense must guide the process of determining the most plausible reading. Informed judgments about a text depend on one's familiarity with the types of copyist errors, manuscripts, uh, versions, versions are just translations, uh, and their authors. It is a complex process with few shortcuts, but one that can be learned through systematic effort.
So uh, now, having covered a, a bit uh, about the, the earliest sources and uh, the discipline of textual criticism, let's look at uh, a couple examples from uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and now, first off, th- these first ones has to do with the, the reports and evaluations uh, on days 2 and 5. Uh, you remember the, the reports, uh, it was so. Uh, what God commanded came to pass. Uh, and the evaluations, God saw that it was good. If you remember from our study, uh, on day two, uh, we found uh, that uh, the, the report that it was so uh, actually came after the action instead of the commandment. Uh, and also, uh, there wasn't an evaluation on day two. Uh, and then with day five, uh, there wasn't a, a report. Well, uh, in the, the Septuagint, uh, so that's an a ancient uh, Greek translation of, uh, uh, of the, the Old Testament, or really uh, translations of all the books that were brought together. Uh, in the, the Septuagint, uh, actually, uh, we find uh, that the, the report uh, in day two is not after the action, but it's after uh, the commandment, uh, just like all of the other days. Uh, we also fi- find uh, that uh, whereas in some of the, the other uh, ancient manuscripts uh, that lack an evaluation on day two, uh, guess what? Uh, the, the Septuagint has an evaluation on day two. Uh, and then Whereas other uh, ancient manuscripts uh, lack a report on day five, uh, guess what the, the ancient Greek translation has on day five? has a report. Uh, and so uh, the question is, uh, with these differences, uh, which is like, likely to be the original uh, or primary reading, uh, the, the one that Moses wrote and that, that Moses attended, uh, and which is like to be likely to be the unoriginal or secondary uh, reading. Uh, or as Wagner puts it, uh, here's an important question that textual critics ask, uh, which reading as the original uh, would give rise to the others? Uh, meaning, uh, if it was the original, which one would best explain how these differences uh, came about? Uh, And so first, as we think about the the order of the report uh, following or uh, following the the commandment, like in the the Septuagint, like the other days. First, let's assume that uh, originally uh, the report uh, followed uh, the the commandment. Uh, But this, uh, if if we assume this, it it immediately erases uh, some problems. Uh, if the, the report uh, was originally in the same order on day two as in all of the other days, it's actually very difficult to explain how it ever, how did it ever get out of order? Uh, how, did a, how did a scribe ever get it uh, out of order? Uh, the, if we look carefully at the text, uh, we don't see any, uh, any reason how they could have made an error of, of, of sight, eyesight, or an error of uh, hearing that would that would make it uh, out of order, uh, and also uh, if there was originally an evaluation on day two, uh, 
and a report on day five, uh, it would actually be very hard to explain how did a scribe uh, fail to copy them. Uh, again, we, we don't see anything in the text where uh, there would be an error of sight or an error of hearing that uh, somehow these would uh, drop out. Uh, how, uh, how could they fail to, uh, to copy uh, the, the evaluation on day two and the report on day five? Uh, in addition, uh, is it merely a coincidence uh, that in the Septuagint uh, that all of these differences are found uh, in the, the Greek translation and presumably uh, the, the Hebrew uh, copies from which it was copying? Because uh, uh, that scribe had a Hebrew copy that he was translating into Greek from. Is it merely a coincidence that all of these differences are found uh, in this Greek uh, translation? Uh, it's probably more likely, and we'll talk in a little bit, uh, that uh, a scribe was actually uh, trying to harmonize. Uh, he saw things out of order. He saw things missing, so he tried to fix them. Or he, he thought he was uh, fixing them uh, very, very, very foolishly. Um, or, or maybe it was even a little more innocent. Maybe one made some notes uh, in the, the margin, the, the borders of the text, or in between the lines, and maybe later they were copied in. But uh, probably he was trying to, uh, to, to harmonize. Uh, and uh, some other problems. Uh, the, the Septuagint, uh, with these differences, uh, as uh, uh, a scholar named Ronald Hendel says, uh, it, it ruins Moses' uh, narrative style. Uh, if you remember, uh, Moses, he likes to repeat things a lot, uh, but he also likes to mix them up a bit. He likes to subtly change the wording and uh, add things and uh, omit things and rearrange them. Uh, but uh, in the Septuagint, you find uh, that it's really going against that, uh, going against uh, mixing things up. It, uh, it has everything uh, uh, so neat and uh, orderly uh, throughout. Uh, and then it also destroys Moses' uh, themes. Uh, because if you remember the theme of seven, uh, seven days, uh, culminating in the seventh day, which is repeated uh, three times, it mentions the seventh day. Uh, and this is the, the theme of, uh, of completion, of uh, the perfection of God's creation. Well, uh, if you remember, there were seven reports and seven evaluations, but in the Septuagint, with the additions on day two and five, you end up with eight reports and eight evaluations. <laughs> uh, kind of throws off the themes, doesn't it? <laughs> the scribe was maybe a little careless. He was trying to fix things, but he, he actually made them worse. <laughs> uh, and so now let's, let's assume that originally... Uh, the report was out of order on day two and that it followed the, the commandment. Uh, and here, there, there's an easy explanation how these differences arose. Uh, as we already said, uh, a scribe uh, was probably trying to harmonize uh, the text, to try and smooth them out, make them more consistent. Uh, as one scholar says about harmonizing, try and make the, the text more perfect. Uh, in his uh, bad, bad judgment. Uh, and so harmonizing, sometimes they'd, they'd add things uh, or, or take things away or try and reword them to, to make them more consistent. Uh, but we see that the, uh, the, the Masoretic or Rabbinic uh, group of, of texts, 
uh, that it, it preserves uh, Moses' narrative style. Uh, lots of repetition, but uh, changes things up uh, every so often. Uh, and it also uh, keeps Moses' themes of the, the seven reports and the uh, seven evaluations. Uh, and so uh, I think from this we can see that we can have strong confidence uh, that the, the Masoretic text and uh, what our, uh, our English Bibles primarily follow uh, in Genesis 1, uh, that, uh, that it preserves the original readings as, as Moses intended and uh, as God intended. Uh, and uh, although uh, overall it, it really doesn't massively change the meaning, uh, you, you can read through translations of the, uh, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, or uh, I've read through the Septuagint, and it's not like uh, you get a totally different view of Genesis 1 where you're like, oh, this is a completely different message. Uh, they have nothing in common. Well, no, you, you still pretty much get the, the same, uh, same message, but still, this is what Moses intended, and uh, with the seven reports and seven evaluations, we see uh, that uh, it was so. Uh, everything that God commanded uh, came uh, to pass. Uh, and uh, everything that God made, uh, God, behold, God saw uh, that it was uh, very good, uh, that it's his complete and perfect creation. And so uh, it does matter. Uh, these issues do uh, matter. And that's why uh, textual criticism matters. Uh, we, we want to know uh, what uh, Moses uh, said. Uh, we, we want to know uh, what the original authors uh, intended, God's authoritative spokesman. Uh, and so uh, this brings us to our uh, next uh, example on uh, having to do with uh, day, day three uh, that we'll begin into more uh, next week. And now we, we touched on this uh, at the, the very start uh, of our discussion, uh, if, if you remember. Uh, le let me just uh, read again. This has to do with the, uh, the, the action uh, that's missing. And God said, uh, starting in verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one gathering, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And the waters under the heavens were gathered to their gathering places, and the dry land appeared. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, uh, here uh, is another area where the, the Septuagint uh, differs uh, than the, uh, the Masoretic or Rabbinic text. The, uh, the Hebrew copy is preserved by the, by the rabbis. Uh, and we see some, some other uh, texts that agree with the, the Masoretic text, uh, the, the Samaritan Pentateuch that we mentioned earlier, uh, which the, the Samaritans preserved of the, the five books of Moses in, in Hebrew. Uh, and then a couple scrolls uh, from uh, from Qumran uh, that agree closely with the, the Masoretic text uh, called uh, 4Q, uh, meaning K4 from Qumran, 
a genesis of B and G. And so the, those are the just the identifying names that are given to them. And now the, the first important thing uh, that we have to uh, establish uh, is whether or not uh, the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, uh, preserves uh, an older Hebrew reading. Uh, for instance, uh, if the, the Greek translator uh, just added this uh, himself uh, and wasn't actually copying from an older Hebrew manuscript, then he just made it up out of thin air uh, and it, it has no plausibility at, at all. It, it couldn't be an original reading uh, because originally Genesis was written in Hebrew. Uh, however, uh, it, it was. It, he was copying from a, a Hebrew manuscript, and I'll uh, show you a couple uh, evidences of this. Uh, the, the first uh, and uh, clearest and most obvious uh, example of this uh, is that we have a fragment from Qumran, uh, 4Q, uh, so K4 from Qumran, Genesis K, uh, that uh, preserves the first two words of the action. It's a little itty-bitty fragment that preserves, uh, well, actually less than the first two words. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, they, they start with the verb, so it preserves the, the verb uh, appeared um, in full, uh, but then it preserves part of uh, the, the dry land. Uh, and so uh, Hendel says uh, these analyses uh, of the Septuagint plus uh, in verse 9b, so that's the action, uh, as conserving a Hebrew text are uh, compelling in themselves uh, and are now confirmed by the partial preservation of this reading uh, in 4Q Genesis K. And so that, that shows there were, there were other copies uh, that had uh, this action in Hebrew. Uh, but in addition, we know that the Septuagint uh, comes from a, uh, that the scribe was copying from a Hebrew copy uh, because of a, a clear what we call a Hebraism. Uh, Hebraism uh, is just, a, uh, for instance, if, if you're translating into Greek, uh, it's, it's translating the Greek so literally, so woodenly, uh, that you actually preserve Hebrew characteristics in the Greek. Uh, it, would, it wouldn't be proper uh, natural Greek. A natural Greek speaker uh, wouldn't speak that way, uh, but the, 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 the scribe is being so literal, so wooden, sticking to the Hebrew text uh, so tightly uh, that you, you actually find uh, some Hebrew characteristics in the Greek. Uh, so uh, an example of this uh, is that uh, in Hebrew... Uh, the word for uh, water uh, is actually in the, the plural, uh, mine. Uh, it's, it's in the plural uh, in Hebrew. Uh, but in Greek, uh, they refer to water uh, in the singular. Uh, they just refer to it as a, a collective. Uh, and so listen to this. Uh, this, this. In the Greek, I, I tried to bring it out uh, into English. So we're going from Hebrew to Greek to English. Uh, it's becoming pretty complex. Uh, but here it is, uh, literal translation. 
the, the water, which is singular uh, in Greek, the water was gathered to their gathering places. And so there is in plural. Uh, but in Greek, you, you'd expect its counterpart uh, to be in singular, but it's not. It's in plural. It, it doesn't agree with the singular water. Uh, and so the, the possessive pronoun uh, we did, should, be, should be singular. It should be the water was gathered to its gathering places, but instead we have the water was gathered to their gathering places. Uh, but uh, that's because in Hebrew, uh, the, the word for water is plural. Uh, these two things were plural in Hebrew. Uh, and so literally in Hebrew, the waters were gathered to their gathering places. And so do you see the, the Hebraism? Uh, it, it's preserved part of the, the Hebrew uh, in uh, the Greek, and we, we can even see it in, uh, in English. Uh, and so there, there's some other examples we, we could give, but that, that's really uh, enough uh, between the, the fragment Qumran and this uh, Hebraism to know that uh, the translator was faithfully translating from uh, the, the Hebrew text. And uh, these differences came from a, a Hebrew ma- manuscript, a, a handwritten copy. And so uh, Hendel says, uh, Tav concludes that this and other harmonizing changes and additions in chapter 1 derived from a Hebrew text rather than the translator's harmonizing uh, tendencies. Uh, And now uh, the question is, as Hendel says, uh, which reading uh, is more likely to have given rise uh, to uh, the other? Uh, The the one with uh, with the action uh, that we find in the the Septuagint, in the the fragment from from Qumran, uh, or uh, the the one uh, without the action. And so first, uh, let's assume uh, that the action is secondary uh, and not uh, original, not what Moses originally wrote. Uh, And so uh, here... Uh, Hendel uh, states, uh, citing uh, another scholar, and I'm going to summarize some of his stuff because he he writes at a pretty technical level with a lot of jargon. So we'll we'll try and leave the the jargon out. Uh, But uh, first, it's possible uh, that that a scribe uh, was uh, harmonizing uh, the, the text. Uh, that he looked at the other days uh, and uh, saw that there were actions on the other days, uh, and so he decided to uh, to add an action to uh, day three that that corresponds with with God's command. Uh, but there, there's a problem uh, with this, uh, something that makes the harmonization unlikely, uh, and that's because. Uh, the, the action actually uh, changes the wording of uh, the, the command. Uh, it subtly changes the wording. Uh, and now if you follow uh, the harmonizations, uh, typically uh, in, in the Septuagint, in Genesis 1, uh, typically when they harmonize, they harmonize uh, word for word 
uh, exactly uh, and rotely. Uh, and so uh, very woodenly uh, they harmonize uh, without variation. Uh, but uh, it's more typical of Moses uh, to add a variation. Uh, so for instance, uh, the action uh, changes the wording of the command uh, with uh, the phrase in the command uh, we see uh, into one gathering. Uh, but then in the action we see into their gatherings. Uh, and so it just subtly uh, changes things, which is uh, more typical of, of Moses. And so Hendel says, uh, the style of variation uh, within repetition is characteristic of the, the priestly writer, or uh, Moses, as we would say, uh, and is unlikely uh, to be the creation of a harmonizing scribe. Hence, uh, the report of God's uh, action or deed in verse 9 is preserved in uh, the Septuagint and 4Q Genesis K uh, and presumed in uh, the book of Jubilees should be taken as the archetypal or original reading. Uh, and also, uh, assuming that the, the action is uh, primary uh, or original, uh, there's actually uh, a good explanation about uh, how uh, the action dropped out, uh, how, how a, a scribe failed to copy it. Uh, and that's because uh, the, the first three uh, letters uh, of, of two words uh, in the, the, the action and uh, in God's calling are spelled uh, the exact uh, same way. Uh, and so uh, the, the word gathered uh, in the action uh, or gathered in the phrase, uh, the waters were, the waters under the heavens were gathered uh, and called in a God called. Uh, the, the first three letters are spelled uh, the exact uh, same uh, way. It's the difference between uh, Vayikavu and Vayikra. Uh, and each begins with uh, uh, Vav, Yod, and Kof. Uh, and so uh, Hendel says, uh, how might this sequence have been lost in uh, the Proto-Masoretic text? And Proto just means the, the earliest version, so uh, from, from the time of the, the Judean desert. Uh, Davila plausibly suggests a haplography, uh, just meaning an omission, a subtraction, triggered by homeoarctone, just meaning two phrases begin the, the same way. There's the, the jargon for you. Uh, as the scribe's eye uh, jumped from uh, Vayikavu, uh, gathered, uh, to Vayikra, called, uh, both of which begin with the, the cluster Vav Yod Kof. Uh, this is an attractive possibility explaining the loss of the report of God's action deed uh, in uh, the Proto-Masoretic text by simple scribal error. And that's a type of error that we know about. Uh, sometimes uh, they'd see two words that were the same or uh, looked very, they started the same way. Uh, and sometimes uh, their eye might jump a, a word, it might jump a sentence, or might even jump a, a phrase or a longer piece of text. And sometimes they'd accidentally uh, omit things and start copying at the, the wrong, wrong place after they pick their, their pen back up. 
Uh, and so uh, why have English translations uh, missed this? Well, uh, remember we talked about the Leningrad Codex, a very, very important uh, codex just means it's type of book. Uh, from 1008 AD, and it's a, a Masoretic or, or Rabbinic uh, Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And well, uh, translations tend to use this one as their uh, primary or uh, base text for their translations. Uh, and sometimes uh, they'll definitely deviate from it, especially when there are obvious errors. But sometimes they're a little hesitant to, uh, to deviate from it. Uh, which isn't a problem with, uh, with New Testament translation and New Testament textual criticism. Uh, and then in addition, uh, it's easy to, uh, to misread or overlook uh, the, the little, little fragment 4Q Genesis K uh, that preserves uh, a word and a, a, a half uh, of the, the action uh, because... Uh, the, the Hebrew expressions uh, in the command, let the dry land appear, uh, and the dry land appeared, uh, the, the actions, the, the verbs differ by just one letter uh, in Hebrew. And so it'd be very easy to, uh, to just overlook this uh, and miss it. Uh, but uh, although they differ by one letter, uh, it's clear that uh, that it is the action. Uh, the, the command is actually uh, the, the longer form of the verb, uh, and the, the action is the, the shorter form. Uh, and Hendel says, uh, it is very unlikely that a, a post-exilic scribe, and so that's just mean a, a scribe uh, after the Babylonian exile, after uh, 538 BC, uh, that such a scribe uh, would miswrite the, the long a prefix form uh, in the in God's command uh, as a short prefix form uh, in the action, as the short form is virtually moribund, uh, dead, uh, in late biblical Hebrew. Uh, hence, it is unlikely that 4Q Genesis K a reading should be understood as an erroneous writing of uh, the the report of uh, God's. Uh, God's word. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that the, the, the action uh, is original. It's, it's what Moses originally uh, intended. And uh, so uh, just thinking about the, the significance of this, uh, again, uh, the, the meaning, it's not like the meaning changes uh, greatly. Uh, we have uh, the repetition of actions on all the other days, uh, we have reports that it was so what God commanded uh, came to pass. Uh, and uh, all of Genesis is focusing on God's work of creation. And so it's not like our overall interpretation, although uh, a full verse dropped out, uh, two, two sentences, our, our overall interpretation uh, wouldn't change. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that the action is part of the uh, the theme, it's very thematic, uh, and it's all about uh, God's perfect work of creation. Uh, and also, all of other God's commandments have a corresponding action on, on all six of the days. Uh, and uh, days three and six are special uh, because they have two commandments and uh, two actions. 
Uh, and so still, uh, this is important. It's what uh, Moses originally intended. Thus, uh, Hendel says, uh, the absence uh, of a report of God's deed for this act of creation in uh, the Masoretic text is explicable as a textual error, uh, which may now be remedied uh, as already uh, in the New American Bible. Uh, God's creation of seas and dry land has its literary completion, long preserved in translation and in Qumran Cave 4. Uh, and that's important thing to, to keep in mind, uh, that this, although this action is missing from most of our English translations, it's been preserved all along. Uh, it's been there uh, all along. Uh, all people had to do was uh, read, the, uh, read the Septuagint. Uh, it's been around for, uh, for thousands of years. And so all we have to do uh, is to uh, read uh, and study and care enough about God's word uh, that we can recognize these things. Uh, and then uh, we can take our already uh, excellent English translations and just tweak them a little bit and make, make them a little bit better uh, by, uh, by adding the, the, the action. Uh, and then finally, uh, I'd just like to uh, close by thinking about the, the significance of uh, textual criticism, something that uh, most people would be like, don't talk to young people about this, you know. Uh, you, you shouldn't talk about that. You, should, you shouldn't bring these things up. It's, it's too complex. And, uh, but really, these things are important. We need to talk about them. And we live in an age where uh, ignorance of how God has preserved his word uh, isn't an option. And uh, really, we, we only have to, to gain from it. We, we only have to gain uh, all the more confidence in God's word that uh, it has been uh, preserved. Uh, and so, uh, if we had uh, more time, we, we could look at a, a text in Psalm 22, verse uh, 16. Uh, and if you remember that one, uh, it's one that Jesus alluded to from the, cor the cross uh, when he said, uh, My God, my God, uh, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and, and this text is a great uh, messianic text. Uh, and in uh, verse 16, uh, we, we won't cover it tonight, uh, maybe uh, some other time. Uh, in the Masoretic text, uh, it literally reads, Like a lion, my hands and my feet. Uh, and as you read through it, uh, in Hebrew, you are like, this is absolute nonsense. What in the world is it talking about? And there's, there's an obvious problem there. But in the Septuagint, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, and guess what we find uh, in a, a couple of uh, scrolls from Qumran? They pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, and we, we could also talk about uh, how, how this phrase like a lion my hands and my feet which already doesn't make sense it it destroys the whole context of this messianic psalm uh but we we won't get into that uh tonight but uh, that that would be one example of why why these things matter why dry dusty old uh manuscripts matter uh why uh 
shepherds in God's providence throwing stones into caves uh, matter <laughs> and how, how that led to the, the greatest archaeological discovery of the, the 20th century. But I, I'd like to read uh, just a, a translation from the, the great Isaiah scroll, uh, 1Q Isaiah A. Uh, and this is translated by uh, Professor Peter W. Flint and uh, Professor Eugene Ulrich. And I found this on the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls Collections online, uh, dss.collections.imj.org.il. Uh, and on, on that, that site. And I, I uh, didn't choose this necessarily because I thought it's the, the very best uh, translation uh, of Isaiah 53. Uh, and in fact, most of the, the differences are, are a matter of translation. It's not a matter of uh, what was found at uh, Qumran. Uh, but this just shows uh, that uh, the, this great uh, Messianic prophecy has been preserved uh, from... A, around 150 B.C., uh, even before the time of Christ, uh, and it came from, from Isaiah from uh, many centuries uh, earlier, uh, pointing to the, the coming of, of God's exalted and suffering servant. And so, starting in uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will prosper, and he will be exalted and lifted up, and will be very high. And now I'm not going to make any comments, but realize uh, it talks about the suffering servant's exaltation, future exaltation, before his suffering. He's he he is exalted because uh, he suffers, uh, and following his suffering, he will be exalted. So we have a heads up uh, uh, how it will. Uh, how it will end uh, even before uh, his suffering begins. Just as many were astonished at you, so was he marred in his appearance more than any human, and his form beyond that of the sons of humans. So will he startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, and now here, the, the, the arm of Yahweh, the, the arm of the Lord, uh, it's often used as a metaphor and a picture of God's uh, judgment or his, uh, in this case, his salvation. So, for instance, in the, the Exodus, God saved them by an outstretched uh, arm. And so here, uh, God's uh, salvation had been accomplished in his suffering and exalted servant, but uh, the, the people did not believe it. His, his own people, uh, the, the Jewish people, uh, did, not, uh, did not believe. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form and he had no majesty that we should look at him. And he had no attractiveness that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, 
and a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, and like one from whom people hide their faces, and we despised him, and we did not value him. Surely he has borne our sufferings, and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that made us whole was upon him, and by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, as a sheep that, that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. From detention and judgment he was taken away, and who can even think about his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Then they made his grave with the wicked, and with rich people his tomb, although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet the Lord was willing to crush him, and he made him suffer, although although you make his soul an offering for sin, and he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will triumph in his hand. Out of the suffering of his soul he will see light and find satisfaction, and through his knowledge his servant, the righteous one, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore will I allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for their transgressions. Uh, yeah, uh, amazing, huh? Uh, and so uh, here uh, we see the, the ministry of uh, God's uh, exalted and suffering uh, servant, uh, and that uh, he was rejected uh, even uh, even by his own people. And this is a, a confession uh, by a later a Jewish remnant recognizing that uh, although we, we looked at him uh, and we, we, thought, uh, we thought that he suffered for his own sins, uh, we thought that he was so insignificant and he wasn't the majestic king that, that we expected, uh, that, that uh, actually... Uh, surely uh, he has borne our sufferings, or uh, even better, uh, surely uh, our sufferings, our afflictions, he, uh, he bore. And that's uh, their confession and the, the confession of, uh, of every uh, believer and everyone who uh, trusts in Christ and uh, recognizes that, uh, that we've uh, sinned against God and that uh, apart from Christ, uh, we, we couldn't stand before God uh, in judgment. We, we couldn't stand before him uh, with our uh, sins uh, not forgiven because uh, we'd be found guilty. But uh, God's uh, suffering and exalted servant 
uh, he uh, bore our iniquities and uh, he uh, lived and uh, suffered and was rejected and uh, died uh, but uh, we also see uh, that he lives uh, yet again uh, we even have a, a picture of the the resurrection uh, in this uh, in this text uh, and so uh, for for any uh, sinners who uh, trust in the the suffering exalted servant they uh, they will be uh, saved uh, for he uh, made intercession for their uh, transgressions and uh, th- that's why uh, issues like uh, old dry dusty uh, manuscripts and uh, textual criticism uh, matter uh, this this has been preserved for uh, thousands of years uh, even before the the time of Christ so that uh, no one uh, has uh, has an excuse for uh, for unbelief and uh, not believing in the the good news of the suffering and the exalted servant and so uh, in the uh, coming coming weeks and months uh, now uh, as just hoping this would be a little overview that uh, from time to time we we can talk about variants that uh, that pop up in the text uh, interesting ones so that uh, you you guys can learn more and we can learn together and uh, sometimes the best learning is done through uh, repetition and uh, osmosis so uh, let's uh, just pray and then we can close Heavenly Father I thank you that uh, we can gather together in freedom and peace and uh, talk about these things and I recognize that uh, these things are uh, maybe a little difficult to think about and things that we don't think about every day, but uh, how important it is to know that your word uh, has been uh, preserved and that uh, it's been uh, long preserved uh, for hundreds and thousands of years uh, through the uh, the copying uh, even of uh, scribes and uh, many people uh, work very hard and uh, sacrifice to uh, painstakingly uh, copy and uh, preserve your word for uh, generations to come so that uh, we could have it today uh, even in our uh, our English Bibles uh, preserved and translated so that's uh, so easy for us to understand and I thank you for your word I thank you that you've uh, preserved it, that you've uh, preserved the, the gospel uh, that we see so clearly uh, in Isaiah 53, uh, your promises of uh, your eternal son coming to, uh, to bear the, the sins and the, the iniquity of, uh, of the many, of uh, all who turn from their sin and trust not in uh, their self-righteousness, but only in Christ alone and we uh, pray that you would build us up in your word and uh, we pray that your son would return and that uh, we would uh, be patiently and expectantly waiting for him and uh, that we would uh, be with him and with you uh, forever and ever. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.